WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Diane Cook joins me here in the studio. Diane, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to see you um, and to finally meet you. We'll get to that, folks. Um, I should say we're taping this. It's uh, on the 6th of November, 2014. Um, Diane Cook came to town um, with her new collection of stories, read at Literati, and you're on a bit of a book tour right now for Man v. Nature. Yeah, I'm in a book tour, like a Midwest East Coast book tour. Where next, Diane? Um, I'm going to uh, Lexington, Kentucky, actually. All right. To uh, Joseph Beth Booksellers. Ooh, sounds like a, that sounds like a great bookstore. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. <laughs> it sounds like a family, like, or some, like a, an indie, independent yeah, one. It's like an indie chain in Kentucky, I think, or that area of Kentucky. I think there's one in Cincinnati and, and around there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really know anyone in Kentucky, but I'm going because they, they were really receptive to the book and, and asked if I wouldn't, if I'd like to come. And I said, of course. Lovely. Love to. Yeah. And then where, where next, Diane? Or yeah. Um, I'm going to go to Philadelphia for a group reading there. A friend of mine runs a reading series. And then I'm going to have my, even though the book's been out for a month, I'll have my New York launch. Oh, New York deserves its own launch. I <laughs> well, because you went to Columbia there for the MFA program yeah. and uh, lived in Brooklyn. Yeah, I lived, th- I lived in New York for 10 years. So in a way, it's weird that I... I just moved to California six months ago, so it's funny to launch the book in a place that I really I'm kind of new to the Bay Area. Um, so coming back to New York will actually feel like the homecoming uh, reading. Although reading last night in Ann Arbor actually felt like the homecoming because did it? Yeah, kind of. There were a lot of people there. I have taught a lot at U of M uh, through, through the NELP. Through the NELP program. New England Literature Program. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of former NELPers, and my husband's family lives in Birmingham, so they had a bunch of people there. It was very nice. It was very sweet. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and then and roll on to, well, Kentucky, Philly, and then New York City. Mm-hmm. Where, and then Maine, yeah. And then Maine. Oh, again, 
Well, that's where NELP happened for you, the New England. How many years did you teach in NELP, Diane? I, I have Because you made an indelible mark. Because when I went there, people were like, <laughs> do you know Diane? Oh, Diane this, Diane that, <laughs> Diane. <laughs> that's my goal in life is just everywhere I've gone, just to have people remember me and go, oh, that one. Well, in Maine, it, it's happened. Yeah. Um, I, I've been teaching there for a while on and off. I think I started in 2000, 2000 was my first teaching there. And I was a student there in 97. So I, I went to University of Michigan. That was that's how it all started. Um, so I was a student and then I was a teacher in 2000 and taught for a couple of years. And then I, I went and had my own career in radio, a radio producer. Yeah. I was a radio producer for this American life for seven years. It's not everyone who has their book blurbed their first collection of short stories <laughs> blurbed by Ira glass. Right. Diane cook does. Yeah. Me. <laughs> well, he was the only one I could ask getting blurbs for books is a little difficult i mean well it's not difficult it's just like it's kind of a you you're asking for this big favor but he was the only one i really felt comfortable just saying hey ira can't just blurb my book please <laughs> and then kind of hopefully you like it you like have to like it to blurb it but i'm hoping you'll like it just blurb it please so that was it was the easiest uh ask of them all i think um it's interesting you say that it's it can be well, because you're asking someone to, I don't know, not write a, a rec letter for you. Not like that, which I'm sure you've written for other people. <laughs> and I've asked for them, too. Yeah, yeah. And ask, yeah exactly. But, but yeah, it's a funny thing. I think when you see it from the outside, um, like the blurbs are the things on the back of the book, like the little points uh, like little phrases of praise that you get like and ho hopefully they're from writers you like I mean if the reader that's the idea is that the reader sees oh I like you know I like Sam Lips I I might like this book so um but I think I had no idea how that all happened and it's like actually kind of this big process that you go through and you're really asking for a writer to vouch for you and that's asking a lot and so they really have to like the book and they really have to read it and or I mean ideally and so um not everyone you ask is going to say yes um but I think from the outside it, it just seems like this really mysterious process it's just a lot of work actually for everyone everyone involved you know what I it made me want I wanted to see Amy Bender's name on here too Amy are you listening out there you should, you should, you should blurb the paperback Amy. um <laughs> She's a lovely person, and I did ask her, um, but she's too busy. But she's so nice uh, that uh, she was like, I'd love to. It sounds like something I'd really enjoy, but I just can't, which is what most people end up saying. So, It sounds like, but she was, I mean, in a way, it's interesting because maybe she influenced you at a certain time or changed how you thought about writing. Yeah, Diane. she definitely did. Um, I think... <clears throat> she I think I was writing a lot of I mean I I'd studied creative writing at U of M I was in the sub concentration here uh and I you know I wrote the dumbest stories full of people getting divorced and like my parents are happily married like I don't even know where it was all coming from but I think it was I was just mimicking what the world like the stories I'd read and the kind of the literature I was reading which was you know like terse men you know there's like Hemingway and Ford and 
um, Carver and like the, it was just it was a very particular world and that I loved and I still love but it wasn't I wasn't getting what I needed from it to like take the next step to actually writing stuff that I cared about and that felt like a story I would write and I uh, I think I came across Amy Bender's collection The Girl in the Flammable Skirt when I was out of college, but um, just out of college, maybe in nine, or 2001, um, 2000, 2001. I actually think I heard a story she did on This American Life, and that was the first time I'd heard her, and then I went out and bought the book and read it, and I, that shifted how I thought about literature and what I could do with it. How so? Um because what could you could, what could you then see that you could do? Well, I think I think if I look back at my undergraduate thesis <laughs> in creative writing, which is embarrassing, um, I think you I know it's on the shelf <laughs> up there, and, right? An angel. I had a friend of mine who came to a reading in Chicago, and she said, "Diane, I still have. It's called Where We're Going. I still have Where We're Going." And I was like, "Groan! Oh no! <laughs> please, please put it away. <laughs> like, don't read it. <laughs> it's bad." <laughs> And then the next day it was on eBay. Yeah, exactly. Um, she, so I, I was, I think I wanted things, I wanted to push the literature in a weirder direction, like when I was an undergrad, but I didn't know how. I didn't have any tools for that. And the books I was reading weren't instructing me in that way. Because you weren't reading George Saunders then, no. Amy Bender. Yeah. And I think George Saunders, his first book came out in like 98 or something or 97 maybe. And oh, so, so it would have been hot off the presses. Yeah, it would have, it, I would have had to have my finger on the pulse and I certainly did not <laughs> at the time. Um, so I, uh, sorry, I, um, uh, I remember trying to make things strange in stories by like inserting dreams or like I, I remember I know that I was trying to to invite like different realities into the stories but I just didn't know how well that's a way of working with the surreal yeah. element that you have got happening mm -hmm. authentically now yeah but so, the dreams like yeah starting, the just, yeah yeah the dreams were I mean, I didn't do them well. And I, I think dreams are really hard to pull off in fiction. Um, I think that, that you can do it, but, uh, but I wasn't doing it at the time. But I, I, I recognized in myself that I was, I was like trying to do something I didn't know how to do. And finding Amy Bender um, and reading her, these, these stories are, so, they're strange and strange things happen in them. But the worlds are very plain and banal and suburban and the people aren't extraordinary in any way. I mean, you know, for the story. And I found that so freeing, like, cause I think, you know, I'd read strange fictions, but they were fantasy or sci-fi or like a hundred years of solitude. And those books didn't, inv they weren't inviting to me. Like they didn't, make me think, oh, I'm going to try that. They felt like something that wasn't for like a, you know, I'm like a suburban girl in college or whatever, just out of college. Like I didn't really know what I had to say about the world, but it didn't seem to be as extraordinary as those texts were, you know. But Amy Bender showed me that you could say these extraordinary things with really 
with playing characters who lived through strange occurrences. And it could all work on a level that felt very familiar to me as a reader. Um, and that was kind of a invitation, I guess, or permission to really start to play with fiction. Uh, and that was kind of when I started. I mean, it took me a while. Then I went to nonfiction for a while, which is a whole other story. But when I went back to writing fiction, there was never a question in my mind that I was going to really spend a lot of time with straight, intense realism. I knew that I would want to play because that's what fiction, the world of fiction felt like a place for me to play with ideas and realities. Today on the program, Diane Cook is here. Her collection of short stories, her debut collection of short stories, Man v. Nature, out with HarperCollins. A quick thank you to Martin Wilson for sending a copy along. Thanks to Tex, he's behind the class engineering for us today. Diane Cook, Man v. Nature. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and we'll be right back after this short break. you're tuning in just now glad you did today on the program diane cook is here i'm t hetzel and we've got diane's short story collection out with harper collins just last month just in october mm-hmm. um man v nature um here before us and before we go any further i'm gonna read diane's short bio in the back of the book and we'll go from there diane cook's fiction has been published in harper's magazine granta tin house zoetrope one Story, Guernica, and elsewhere. Her nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times Magazine and on This American Life, where she worked as a radio producer for six years. She earned an MFA from Columbia University, where she was a teaching fellow. She lives in Oakland, California. And now we know other facts, too, such as at undergrad at University of Michigan, 
go blue, um, just moved to Oakland six months ago. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's talk radio briefly. Um, how did you find your love for radio and this American life? How did that happen? Well, I didn't listen to public radio until after college. I was living in our Ann Arbor at the time and I was doing book rush at Shaman Drum, Shaman Drum. I don't know. Um, the, now gone. Now gone, sadly. Uh, and it was like maybe the semester after I'd graduated that winter. And I lived with a friend and we would just listen to the radio. I mean, like, I don't know, we just instantly felt more grown up, like after college than we had during college when we did all sorts of college things. Um, so I was listening to radio and I wasn't really writing. Like, I think I'd thought, oh, I'll be a fiction writer. And then I probably thought, no, no one does that really. Like, it's not a thing that you can, it's not practical, Diane. You've got to be practical right now. Um, but I, I ended up moving to Portland, Maine um, for just for a job uh, to teach. I really wanted to live in Maine always. So I, I just thought, well, now's the time. Just go have some fun and figure it all out like through working odd jobs so I worked tons of odd jobs there and I found this documentary school that existed there um called the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies and I lived down the street from it I walked by it on my way home from work every day like I think it was working at a bakery at the time um a writer's job yeah <laughs> I was a cashier I really wanted to be a baker but I didn't they wouldn't let me. <laughs> well, that would have taken a little bit more time. And then it's, but you found the yeah. documentary school. Yeah. So Serendipitous. I, I know it was, it was really, it was, there was a lot of things that happened in my life in my twenties that were, I mean, all throughout, but mainly in my twenties that where I, where I think back now and I think it so easily could not have happened or it's so easily I could have overlooked this thing or not tried or not applied. Um, but I did, and I got some cool experiences. So I applied to that school thinking, oh, yeah, documentary, like telling the truth. That's what I want to do. I'm tired of this fiction thing. What does it matter? You know, telling real stories. Yeah, telling real stories is where it's at. And I was listening to This American Life um, and I loved it. And I thought, that's a job I'll have when I'm 50 and now start working towards it now, <laughs> um, which isn't how it works. Life doesn't work that way. So. I went to that program. I learned how to do radio. It was kind of serendipitous. That they didn't even have a radio program at the time. They just were starting one. And it just so happened that a bunch of us who'd applied for the writing track of, it was like basically a narrative nonfiction writing program. And it was only a semester long. I should stress that it was just like another three, three or four months of school. Um, all of us in our cover letters had written that we were really interested in radio and they'd been talking with a local radio producer there named Rob Rosenthal um, about starting a radio track for documentary radio. But they hadn't done it yet. And it wasn't until our class came in and we'd all totally coincidentally talked about a love of radio that they decided, well, let's try it. And they said, do you want to do this <laughs> to us? There were like six of us in the room. And we were like, yeah. <laughs> so we like did double duty that semester. It was great. Um, so we all learned radio and a bunch of us still work in radio now. We were kind of this, I don't want to, we weren't the, the first radio producers in the world, but I feel like there was this moment when I knew like radio really caught on with young people 
And we were at the beginning of that. One of the first times I've ever been at the beginning of something, I think, of a, of a move, of a wave or a movement. That's what it felt like. Um, so I got out of that program and then I applied to be an intern at This American Life, not thinking I had a chance, but I got it. So I moved to Chicago and was an intern there, um, I think maybe for six months. And then I, you know, I moved to New York to try and break it in radio there and I wasn't having any success, but I'd had a good time at This American Life and I did good work for them and they liked me. And when they had a job open up, they told me to apply and I did. And then I got hired as a producer, which was surprising to me, but I think I'd learned there that actually the people they want to hire are young and moldable. <laughs> you know, they want someone they can teach how to do a thing and who will do that thing for them. Um, and that's a little harder for a really established seasoned reporter to, to like learn a new way of doing things and to do it like without a lot of fuss, you know, not a lot of, um, pushback so because that program has its way doesn't it it is it's 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 not i mean formula sounds too harsh because then it feels like it lacks discovery which is not not the case Mm -hmm. but it it has its way doesn't it totally it's that's a good way of putting it i think i use the word formula and i always cringe a little bit because it has such a bad connotation but but you're right like it it's it's a it's a way of doing things that works really well and that's why it becomes a formula because because that's what you do when you've got a formula. Yes, Diet de- Coke has a formula. <laughs> Coca-Cola has a formula. But it's good. They deliver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they wrote it down because it worked. Um, so are you still working in radio, Diane, then? I'm not anymore. Okay. I left in 2007 uh, to go back to school for writing. And that's when you went to Columbia? Mm-hmm. That, that's when I went to Columbia. So did that feel like a big recommitment to fiction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, toward the end of This American Life, I just started to feel there's this thing that would happen when we'd have a story that we really loved, um, that we were trying to work on or or to, you know, to put it together into this, you know, the way it needs to look to, to be on the show. Um, and it just wouldn't work. Like there's something about it that just wouldn't work. And we wanted it to work, but it didn't work. Like someone something didn't happen the way it needed to happen or someone didn't say a thing that they needed to say or there should have, you know, like something. And we would even talk in story meetings about, gosh, if only this person had said this instead of this, this would be an amazing story, but it just didn't happen that way. And it's, you know, and ethically you can't, you can't push it in that way. No. And you can't make it up. So I mean, I think there's, you know, there's some room if you're a reporter, you can really like, you can ask questions that might get a, 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 a subject to think in a certain way. And that's like definitely a, you know, something I'm sure people do, but that wasn't maybe on the table or like it was just something more fundamental about the story that just didn't work. And that's a hard thing to go through all the time and happened all the time. Um, it's hard to go through with something you really care about. So I think I got tired of looking at the facts of the world and seeing lots of stop signs and walls and things to get over um, and things that would stop me from doing the work I wanted to do. And you know what? Fiction doesn't have those. (laughs) Gosh, it's so nice. (laughs) Um, And I also was thinking, 
like when I got out of college and I was looking at what I could do with my life, I didn't ever think I'll be a writer. Like that'll work out for me. I thought, well, I'll be an editor. I'll work with writers because I don't know how to, I don't know how to be a writer for a living, for my living. I don't know how to make that my life. I'm not sure I can do it. And I worked with writers all the time at This American Life. So, you know, after seven years of working there and having these little disappointments about factual storytelling and also working with writers who were doing it, like they, it was important to them that they were a writer, that they made their living as a writer. And so they did it. And, and you I saw people doing it. Yeah. Week and I, after week. <laughs> I saw them doing it. I worked with them. And then sometimes I helped them be a better writer. So I thought I can... Like, I have to try. I don't know if I can do it, but I at least have to try. Um, so that, so there was never a question in my mind that I would do fiction. I mean, I, there's, I had no interest in going and doing a nonfiction MFA because I felt like I kind of already had done that. Um, and I just, I wanted to have some fun with writing and storytelling. Cause it's story- coming back to play, isn't yeah. it? And, mm-hmm. and, and what were you going to say about storytelling? Today? Well, it's hard. It's hard to learn. It's hard to figure out how to tell a satisfying, successful story. There's lots of things to think about and learn. Um, so once I'd figured it out, I mean, you know, it, every case is, is its own battle. Like every story you're still like struggling with it, but I think I have a good sense of narrative now after having to do it as a job with a deadline for seven years. Um, so now, um, yeah, you're, you're pacing in these stories. You can, you can, it's, it's apparent that how well it's working, the rhythm and the pacing of them. Thank Maybe you. It's part of it. Well, that, I'm glad. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. Cause I think a lot about pacing and I'm not sure that that, you know, there's little things that writers think about, like, very intensely for themselves, and they're never sure that it's a thing that other people notice. Maybe it's seamless. Maybe, like, right. it's just a thing that, like, is there, but you don't know how much work goes into it. So thank you. I appreciate that. I think a lot about pacing. I read everything out loud. My sentences are written not for not so they'll be beautiful sentences, but because they sound right when I read them out loud. Um, so how they're moving yeah you know and yeah it's how they're moving and like because I'm still influenced by like seven years of listening to things like changes the way you work with words um so I it's I don't know how else to write if if I'm not thinking about how it sounds out loud well it shows thanks (laughs) yay and so you know what and so when we come back from this next break will you read something for us yeah that'd be great and so um what um and of course man v nature is one of there's a the title story is within the book Mm -hmm. um how long did it how how long did it come how long did it take you to come up with that as your the guiding force of the book was it where you because maybe we can talk a little bit about the Oregon coast or where Mm. you were producing some of the material or Mm -hmm. yeah I you know I was writing stories in grad school just basically learning how to write again learning how to write a fiction story learning how to write for myself and not for the radio program um and I would like write and write and write stories. I have like 20 stories in the drawer that I never finished um, outside of the stories that are in the book. Um, and I, uh, 
but at some point during grad school toward the end and then right after I started to ask myself, well, it's not enough just to know how to write a story. You have to think about what you want to talk about in the world and what you want to think about publicly with people, with readers. Um, And like, so Diane, I'm saying to myself, (laughs) like, (laughs) what do you care about? What fascinates you? What are you obsessed with? What could you think about forever and never get tired? And I think part of it, I started to think, well, it's the natural world. There's something about the way we fit or don't fit into the natural world anymore, which is what I wanted to think about. And or at least at this point in my life, that's what I wanted to spend years kind of musing over and writing stories that, you know, started with big questions for me and that I wrote the story to figure something out. Um, So I went to Oregon and I lived in the woods for four months. I mean, this was a residency. I didn't just like pack up and <laughs> leave my like, life. How did you find the cabin? Or was it a cabin? <laughs> it was a residency at the Sitka Center for Art and Ecology. And uh, it was a place that, that caters to art and <laughs> art and ecology. Um, and having those two things like science and art talk to each other. So they want people whose work is nature-based or place-based. And then mine was at that point, it was just beginning to be. Um, And that was a place where I could really just think about, um, I know I could like walk in the woods every day and just like watch and look at anything, observe anything, read, you know, nature history or um, nature writing and just think about all of these things and, and then try and ask myself, well, how does this connect to being a person in the world? How, how are the things that are happening in the natural world actually a thing that, that could happen to me, you know, as a person? And that's where a lot of the stories end up coming from, whether they seem like it or not. Let's take a short break and then pick up on that. Okay, Diane, when we come back today on Living Writers, Diane Cook is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Diane Cook is here. Man v. Nature, Diane's collection of short stories. Diane, thanks for picking the songs t- for today's show, too. Um, what about this last little number? <laughs> we were just talking in the break about, that's a song called Amelia's Waltz. And uh, it is a song that we play at the New England Literature Program, uh, the 
for so the the program is where students live together with the staff. Um, we live and learn in a at a camp in the woods, and we read like Walden, and we live like we live at Walden, and it's wonderful. Um, it's a great learning experience uh, and a great way to read literature. But the very first day the students arrive is this like really disorienting day for them and they get cabins and then they, uh, and their cell phones, everything's, yeah, they, they give up all away. their technology yeah. and they go to sleep in this dark, strange place with no ties to the outside world. And it's wonderful um, and kind of radical. And then they wake up in the morning. We have to like put the whole camp together. So we wake them up to, there's a bunch of musicians on staff and we wake them up to that song. We walk from cabin to cabin. Everyone has their instrument. There's a cello. There's a guitar. There's a fiddle. There's a penny whistle. And whatever other instrument people play, we bring orange juice to them. Every like, There's like a trail of musicians walking through the woods playing the song. And then there's a bunch of us like doling out like orange juice. And then we have like a day of work. But that song is like one of my favorite songs because I've heard it so many times and it's such a special moment. And for beginnings. Yeah, for beginnings. Um, and I actually, I love it so much that I, <laughs> I had the, um, some of my friends from the staff uh, who attended my wedding a few years ago in Maine. Um, I, uh, I had them play it for me when I walked down the aisle. <laughs> it was like very lovely. And another beginning. Mm-hmm, yeah, totally. Um, so it's it's a very special song. Not like that. There's a million versions of it. It's like an old, what standard folk standard, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I love it. Well, let's let's go let's go back. Um, thanks for thanks for. Sh- telling us that yeah. that one because that yeah that's close to the heart i can tell it's a little embarrassing to be so gushy about a thing but i love it i won't i won't uh, hide my love for it no don't <laughs> well it's too late now yeah anyway. right <laughs> can we re- rewind <laughs> it's freeform diane <laughs> um but but when we left off before the break, you were, you, we, we sort of saw you were walking in the oregon forest looking at the natural world mm-hmm. um along the coast there and you were imagining like how how could this if there's like an something in the natural world what would that be like for a person Mm -hmm. to be surviving or thriving or yeah um could you give an example from like one of the stories like how you were how that sort of made itself apparent yeah i was thinking um i was watching uh some birds one day uh, a crow, crows and a hawk, I think. And the crows were like trying to chase the hawk away or they're bothering the hawk in some way. Um, and I don't know what the relationship between crows and hawks are, but I thought, but it reminded me of all the things that I've watched ever on docu- right, like nature documentaries where like, you know, an animal's in their den and they go out to hunt for their little baby animals and then a, a predator comes and takes, like, steals the baby. Um, or, you know, like 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 the birds on the seashore when they have those, like, 
you know, like, I don't know, I've watched a ton of nature documentaries. Um, they'll, like, have, like, the colony of seabirds nesting um, for the season, and then the little foxes will come in and steal the eggs. And there's nothing that can be done. It's just what happens in the wild. Um, and the mothers and the people or the the birds who have laid those eggs and have lost those chicks uh, will just live to have another one you know the next season they'll mourn it in the way that they mourn it um if you believe that i do i happen to um but they there's like a kind of way that the wild world just keeps moving on and it's a lot of uh it's a lot of battle and struggle and i and i was watched so i was watching these birds and i could sense that there was like a territory or a protective thing going on between them and i thought it's like it's endless like there's you're constantly if you're an animal you're constantly nervous that something's about to threaten you or your young um and i thought to myself what if that was what it was like for us every day um, and, you know, I mean, the argument can be made, and that's why I think the stories were so interesting to write, that it is like that for some people, depending on where they live and what their situation is. Um, there's lots of realities out there in the human world that aren't necessarily mine. But this one, having that thought was a way for me to just think about what it means to grieve something, what it means to lose something, what it means to be nervous, what it means to have anxiety, big and small cases of it. And I think that's a lot, a big thread out in the book. And did it come, did it, it seems like it manifested also in somebody's baby. Yeah, that's the, so that's the story that thinking is, is led to one of the stories in the book, Somebody's Baby, which is about a man who uh, steals newborns from their mothers when they're not looking. And in the neighborhood, it's sort of when it happens, mm -hmm. people bring casseroles and say, well, then to cope, you must try again. Yeah. So the man who's lurking around is the hawk. And then yeah, the, or the, yeah, the, the predator. crows are trying to protect or Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I think probably a birder out there might say that's not actually what's going on at all when you see that. <laughs> so <laughs> I but, totally understand that. But think about the life of the imagination. <laughs> yeah. Ye who it's would. <laughs> definitely happening with some birds somewhere. Um, yeah. So that that was what I was trying the, to think of. Okay. The seabirds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with the fox. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> I'm just like, I want to get it right, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what I was thinking about, just of what would it, what would happen if, if our young were as uh, vulnerable as, like, other animals in the wild. And I like to think of the spectrum, the animal spectrum that humans live on. Like, we're animals. We're very distanced from that reality, though. But I like to, I like to, like shorten that distance. I think it's really an interesting project. Um, so what was interesting to write this story was I just had that question in my head and I started writing. That's often what I do. Um, and what it, what the story, you know, it, it, the story eventually for me and hopefully for others, like pushes past just that conceit. Oh, well, when you have a baby, there's a man, he's going to steal your baby and you've got to make sure that doesn't happen. But guess what? Like, it's impossible. It will like, it's just impossible to be that vigilant. And that's, what's interesting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's most. Yeah. That's, um, that idea that, um, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing you can do sometimes. So the powerlessness. Yeah. Like, how do you live with mm -hmm. 
that. Yeah. How do you live with that? And what, what do different people cope? Like how do people, different people cope? So in the story, there's lots of different coping mechanisms that the different women in the neighborhood come up with. One of which is to make it this seem like, I mean, this is a normal occurrence in the neighborhood. It's not, uh, abnormal. Um, and the, you know, it, it, it became a story about motherhood anxiety in a way that I hadn't expected. And I think that it, it isn't just about a situation that's impossible. Um, like this is not a thing that happens to us in our regular life, but grief and small scale loss, like as in families or like as mothers, I'm not a mother, but I, most of my friends are, and I think about this a lot. I'm a daughter and there's loss there. Um, and it just like it it just the story began to mine all of those small ways that like you know you lose your children whether you physically lose them or whether they just grow up you know and you there's like a thing that happens there and that's what the story i think ended up being about is like what about how what does it mean to lose someone just through the process of life that they change they become someone unknown to you um and that think that's what happens between the mother and the daughter Big who choice. are at the center of the story and it's interesting how you you do say diane um i mean that's a big deal what you just said then that's no small thing and it's what we all and whether we I don't know, can spend time with it or articulate it in that way. That's, that seems to be the nature of living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that you say in the neighborhood, it's just, it's not abnormal. Mm -hmm. And so this is, and that's the, that's also the re a reoccurring theme of this. Like whatever's happening is not abnormal, even though it feels very much out of whack. Um, even the final story in the book, the not needed forest with, again, like there's the opening scene where it, it wasn't unusual to see the, the, the non-chosen, the boys, the not needed boys, like their stuff would be out on the, the curb. Mm -hmm. Right. And the piles weren't unusual in the mm -hmm. neighborhood yeah. that other kids would then come and mm -hmm. take from if they were still deemed needed. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So I know it's kind of weird how I'm just saying this about you guys, you have to read this book <laughs> and then you're going to know about this. Right. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Well, I like to play with realities. Like I like to play with the rules of a, of a world. There's a little bit of world building in the stories. Um, and I, I just, I think this goes back to the, my, it's like a reaction to being a nonfiction reporter for seven years or producer. Um, I think there's something really valuable to be, uh, had when you, you make both you, the reader, you and the reader a little uncomfortable by playing with the rules. Um, so a lot of my stories, uh, something will happen in the story that just is not possible in our daily life or we don't see it. It's not part of our normal existence, but in my world, in these stories, the world of these stories, it happens. That's just the truth. And I'm, I'm very conscious to set that up in the beginning to make sure the reader understands. In this world, this happens this way. And now that you know that, you can read the rest of the story and you won't be confused. Um, if you can come with me, then then you'll have a really good experience like in this world. I mean, it, it'll be 
might be terrifying, but, um, you know, if you can let go a little bit suspend your disbelief just a little bit, like then you'll get something from the world that these, these, um, characters are living in because it's a world not that different from ours, but there's something that happens in the world that I'm trying to use to illuminate something that we're very familiar with. And so I, there's, there are strange things that happen in the stories, but they happen in really familiar settings. This gets back to the Amy Bender question. Like it's sub- suburbs and cities and forests and they're kids, they're people like us, um, but they're living a slightly different reality. And I, but I think it's, it's so human. It's so deeply human that it's almost animal that it connects back to us in a way that like we can't help but feel it's a primal thing. Just today on the program, Diane Cook is here. Her, her story collection is Man v. Nature, out with HarperCollins um, now, really fresh off the presses, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to hear more on Living Writers today. writers. I'm Tia Hetzel. Today, Diane Cook is here with her book, her short stories, Man v. Nature. Um, and we've been promising this, or I should say I have, that Diane's going to read from Man v. Nature. So let's make that happen now. <laughs> okay. um, I'm just going to read the basically the very first little bit from somebody's baby, the story I was just talking about. Um, so... Linda swaddled her newborn Beatrice in the butter-yellow blanket the neighborhood women had knitted and joined her husband in the car. They drove from the hospital, smiling at the baby and each other. They turned onto their street and smiled at their house, which they'd had restored and painted a color they believed would make all the difference in raising their family. Then their smiles vanished. The man was already in the yard. They pulled into the driveway and the man skulked behind the maple. When he saw that they'd seen him, he stepped out from behind it. He loped across the yard, then back. 
Linda hugged Beatrice close, let her husband do the job of slamming the car doors, shouting, staring the man down. She felt helpless, and so she scurried, she scurried quickly to the house, knowing that her husband's attempts to be menacing would fail. Inside, she watched the man in the yard watch the house. She knew it wouldn't be long before he got inside. He always did. And so Linda never left the house unless she had to. She locked up after her husband went to work. She installed bars over the windows. In the nursery, she stood behind the curtains while Beatrice slept, and she watched the man. When she took out the garbage, she clutched the baby to her chest and locked eyes with the man as she stumbled past with the leaking bag. But all it would take was a brief moment. She knew that. If she spent too long looking in the fridge, if she sliced her finger cutting carrots and grimaced in pain, if she fell asleep while Beatrice napped, it would be some small thing. Linda had asked her neighbors to call if they ever saw the man approach. She could hear them hold their breath cautiously over the phone. We'll try, but Linda, you know, they'd start to say, and Linda would hang up. She knew what they wanted to tell her, and she didn't want to hear it. At least if she could see him, if someone could see him, it meant he wasn't already inside. But then one day a package was delivered. She signed for it carelessly, looking instead at the man in the yard. Inside the house, she drew out a knife to slice the box tape, and she noticed the package wasn't addressed to her. It wasn't even for someone on the block. The delivery man had given her a stranger's package, and he was already down the driveway in his truck. Wait, she called, running to stop him before he pulled away. He jumped from the truck to meet her, and something about his quickness made her suddenly remember the man in her yard. How easily her mind had let go of that burden. Some dumb box was all it took. She dropped it, ran into her house screaming, but it was too late. The man had come and gone, and he had taken Beatrice with him. Thanks, Diane. You're welcome. So from this, we, I mean, we can see, feel like the tenuousness of all things, like of things you love, being able to keep something safe. Um, and yet, like you were telling us earlier, you're setting the rules. Like you can see how you're sort of setting the rules for the story in these opening paragraphs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the next scene is her mourning and the women in the neighborhood coming by and saying, you know, like, buck up, like, there's nothing you can do. This is just what happens here. Um, but you'll have another one and everything will be fine. Just don't worry, you know, don't worry. Uh, which I feel like is a thing we say to one another all the time, even in the midst of great, like, things that feel like great danger. Um, it's or like great the, loss. Yeah, or great loss. It's the only thing you can say if this is what reality is, you know, if this is the thing that you can expect, and it's something you can expect. Um, so yeah, so I, I spend a lot of time in the beginning of all the stories, just making sure that if a reader has a question, like I'm putting that there, like nervousness about the world to rest. Um, no, this is the way things are. You're not, not misreading anything, but not saying why, but mm -mm. ever, like, it's not the why of it. Like, why does, why is he always out there watching yeah. or, or is it just like, the unfolding like is it just this why this house or no it's the why this neighborhood or mm -hmm. but 
Oh, I mean, <clears throat> I don't, I'm not interested in the why. <laughs> because it is. Yeah. So I think that you being assured of what this world is mm-hmm. and writing about it in that way right. convinces yeah, I hope. I mean, I hope. I'm sure it doesn't work for everybody. Um, every writer's got a, or every reader has a thing that they want to see, and the, you know. Um, but a lot. But your best read. I, mean, I think every writer knows who their best reader is, like who they're kind of hoping finds the book. Um, and mine is someone who's like game. You know, they're game to to really explore something and kind of let loose, let hold let go of the reins a little bit and just say, okay, this is the world and I'm interested in it. I'm interested in why this rule exists. Not because I need to know the why, but I want to see how the rule affects life. And the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun to, I, I really enjoy setting up a different reality in a story. And I enjoy kind of like manhandling it in a way to, you know, until you get to the point where, where it's like the, everything is set up in a, in just a a couple lines, you know, um, like the not needed forest, I think is a, is a really great, (laughs) I'm going to toot my own horn, a really great (laughs) beginning because it really, it does it in like two lines and that's all you really need to know. Could you read those lines? Yeah, I'll read them. Um, cause you were talking about it, uh, you were kind of discussing the beginning and what that looks like. Um, but it really, it's, you know, it's very simple, uh, the way it begins. This is the, these are the first couple lines. I get told I am not needed by a man in a suit. This only happens to 10-year-old boys and only some. That's actually kind of all you need to know, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping, and then I, I'm, I'm adding details that, like, make that world feel real, but really that's it (laughs) that's all you really need to know for this story and then you'll learn like what happens to not needed boys um and what they go through but you don't need to know why they're not needed and you don't need to know why the world is this way it is this way you know uh, someone if we wrote about someone (laughs) from another time or another planet whatever um read a book about a very a very realist book from our world they'd be like why is the world like this it's so strange it just depends on what you're used to and what worlds you want to create here in this book and what you're examining um so what are you working on now diane i'm working on a novel um writing it currently i'm maybe like just in the throes of it (laughs) it's 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 a big project a novel it's quite intimidating um but i i don't it's i don't know what to say about it except that it's it's about um well it's about people living in the wilderness so there's this thing i'm still puzzling over the story is not fantastic or fabulous in any way but it's a little speculative so it's looking to the future and asking well what if the world looked this way in the future instead of this way and that's kind of where i'm starting from and if people are choosing some sort of way of connecting or reconnecting to nature Mm -hmm. that may or may not have been taken away from them by some element of society Mm -hmm. or so yeah, it's a choice. It's it's an interesting thing to work with a group of people, characters, who've made a very extreme choice. Um, so that's the kind of world I'm kind of plugged into right now. In a very tiny way, it does remind me of Nelp, yeah. where everyone like chooses to be part of this program uh-huh. where they go 
and give up technology or so and live without electricity and mm-hmm. these things. And um, yeah, I think a lot about NELP. <laughs> I'm very connected to it. It's a, it was a it's a big part of my life. Just the, all the thinking that goes into it and the experiences I've had there. The wild the wildness and the wilderness mm-hmm. that you're that that's part of your creative life mm-hmm. and yeah. Um, um, so quickly, just um, uh, uh, Katie Carey, a couple of people from the year when I was at NELP, she just, she's just she been working weekly um, with a writing group at Macomb County Correctional Facility. Um, and through a Kickstarter campaign, they published a book, Poets Unchained, A Poem Should Never Be a Secret, Things That Need to Be Heard. Kind of amazing, mm-hmm. right? And then also um, Gal Liberzon, um, his first book of poetry is out, Bodies, 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 <laughs> um, published with the Neutral Zone Press. Um, it's some a great kind, title. It is, isn't it? There are commas there. And it's five bodies, so I hope I got that right. But it's just so interesting that there can be... Um, I don't know, these these wellsprings. And I love to see how, like, literally when your book arrived in the mail, Diane, and I saw Man V Nature, I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were like Nelper. <laughs> and why why V? Why did you insist on, because I know there, there's a page where it happens, mm-hmm. where the characters talk about it, but why did you insist on V? I just wanted it that way. And it, I never even thought that it could be another way until... I think some people want to make it verses and they want to make a VS, you know, and uh, <laughs> like I've made a mistake somehow. <laughs> You're like, no, no, this is my title. That's how I wanted it. But I'm not even sure why. I just like the look at it of it. I liked saying V. It's again, it's a pacing thing and it's like how it sounds. I think verses is a very flubby, awkward it's- word. So that was that was what I I think there's like something really beautiful about the V and on the cover it's red and it's just stark and I think there's a lot in it because otherwise because that's what it is actually it feels like that's the action of it mm-hmm. doesn't it it isn't something it's that's punchy. flubby it's something it's very intense like I think the V is very intense and I I like that it's there in that way and that it looks exactly the way it does Diane Cook thank you for talking with me today thank you it was so nice to be here come back anytime oh yeah sure <laughs> today on the program Diane Cook was here her book Man V Nature I'm T Hetzel thanks for listening out there everyone until Until next time. Page 31, Canada Goose. As the geese return northward to Canada in the summertime, Americans from across the United States likewise descend upon Toronto for North by Northeast, June 17th through 21st this summer. 
It's a time when music, film, art, and comedy take over downtown venues, stages, boats, airports, and pretty much everywhere else. North by Northeast oozes over Toronto with film screenings, parties, and music at your favorite sweaty club or bar. Listen to your favorite WCBN DJ, and you can get free tickets. You can be like a goose and go to Toronto June 17th to 21st for North by Northeast, a five-day festival of music and stuff. What is a Groovosaurus? It's an ancient and revered music-seeking beast Once thought extinct, it now lives in the basement of the Student Activities Building at the University of Michigan. It comes out once a week, from 8 to 10 p.m. on Monday nights, only on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Good evening and welcome to La Explosion Banda. Bienvenidos a La Explosion Banda. Give me a call, 763-3500.